Hello, friends. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. At the end of August, the White House announced a plan to forgive $20,000 in student debt for borrowers who received Pell Grants. The Biden administration says that the plan falls under the HEROES Act of 2003. Uh, Opponents argue that it doesn't. Today on We the People, we will examine the legal arguments for and against the Biden administration's power to forgive student debt. And it's wonderful to be joined by two great friends of We the People. Fred Lawrence is the secretary and CEO of Phi Beta Kappa and a distinguished lecturer at Georgetown Law Center. He's the author of Punishing Hate, Bias Crimes Under American Law. Fred, it is wonderful to welcome you to We the People. Jeff, good to be here. Thank you. And Charles C.W. Cook is a senior writer for National Review, where he's written several important pieces about the forgiveness plan. Uh, Charlie, it is always wonderful to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Fred, let's begin with the legal arguments in favor of the Biden administration's debt forgiveness plan. The administration invokes the Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students Act of 2003, which gives the Secretary of Education authority to alleviate the hardship that federal student loan recipients may suffer as a result of national emergencies. Tell us about this law and why you think it authorizes the Biden administration program. Thank you, Jeff. In 2003, Congress passed the so-called HEROES Act, Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students Act. Uh, This was designed to give authority to the Secretary of Education to grant waivers or relief for student financial aid debt that had been uh, accumulated by these individuals. And here comes the statutory language, in connection with war or other military operation or national emergency. That's the language of the 2003 statute. Uh, It allows waiving of statutory or regulatory requirements related to federal student loans for three categories of individuals, active duty military, those who reside or are employed um, in an area of natural disaster, and then here comes the third one, those who've suffered economic hardship as as a result of wars, military hardships, or national emergencies. So that is the key authority, that national emergencies language that has been used not just by the Biden administration, but also by the Trump administration to find a basis for debt relief for uh, COVID-19-related issues. In many ways, this is bipartisan from the beginning. The HEROES Act in 2003 had strong bipartisan support in both houses of Congress. It was signed into law by President uh, George W. Bush. And then in March of 2002, in the last year of the Trump administration, uh, the CARES Act was passed by Congress, which included a pause on federal student loans. But that pause expired on the 30th of September. So what was going to happen after the 30th of September, still during the Trump administration? Uh, In advance of that, August of 2020, two years ago, the Trump administration issued a memorandum instructing the Secretary of Education and that administration to pause student loan payments through the end of the calendar year, December of 2020, and the authority they used was the HEROES Act, that national emergency language from the HEROES Act. On December 5th, 
The Trump administration then pushed it out further to January 31st. That was going to give the new incoming administration uh, the ability to do whatever they wish to do with that. And indeed, the Biden administration did further extend that pause, just like the Trump administration, using the HEROES Act national emergency language to extend it. And under the most recent uh, debt reduction plan, that pause will expire or is planned to expire by the 31st of December of 2022. But in addition to the pause on repayment, there is the debt relief, as you said, up to 20,000 for Pell eligible students, up to 10,000 for those whose grants are not Pell grants, all based on the national emergency language of the HEROES Act of 2003. Thank you so much for that introduction to the case. Charlie, tell we the people listeners, why you think that the HEROES Act does not authorize the Biden administration's plan? Well, no one thought that the HEROES Act authorized the Biden administration's plan until the Biden administration wanted to follow through on a promise that it had made during the election uh, in connection with Congress. Uh, As Justice Scalia famously argued, Congress does not hide elephants in mouse holes. And the notion that this law, which was passed in 2003 after 9-11, either says or was intended to allow or was regarded as permitting the president to spend a trillion dollars without Congress, that's more than the 10-year cost of Obamacare, is, I think, absurd. It's uh, post-rationalization. If you believe that it allows for Uh, the delaying uh, of debt collection, um, which I'm skeptical of, fine. But, you know, no more conservative a figure than Nancy Pelosi drew a clear distinction last year between delaying collection and cancelling, which is really transferring to the taxpayer debt. Nancy Pelosi said during a press conference, the president can't do it. That's pretty emphatic. So that's not even a discussion. She said, not everybody realizes that, but the president can only postpone, delay, but not forgive. And this was also what the Department of Education found when it looked into the matter in January 2021. So what I see here is Joe Biden following in the footsteps of Donald Trump and before him, Barack Obama, and indeed following in his own footsteps with the eviction moratorium and scouring the law books for fragments of sentences that have put together Uh, and in the OLC's memo, they're put together with ellipses, it's fairly transparent, can be held to accord sweeping powers where they don't uh, exist. Uh, I think this is a clear violation of the major questions doctrine. But I also think that even if I'm wrong, even if one could read this statute to permit the president, in case of emergency, to take this sort of action, the justification that Biden has offered to invoke it remains disingenuous. COVID-19, it seems, is Schrodinger's crisis. You know, I I was criticized on on the right a few months ago for praising Biden when he ordered the end of Title 42. And Title 42, for those who don't know, changes the way the government can treat illegal immigrants at the border during a crisis, especially a health crisis. But I thought that irrespective of the policy merits, I'm more of an immigration hawk, the waning of COVID-19 meant that the emergency had passed, and Biden was not only allowed to, but obliged to acknowledge that. And Biden agreed, and his team argued in court that the emergency powers conferred by Title 42 had expired because COVID 
had diminished as a crisis. And now, a few months later, we're told that the same crisis, the one that's apparently over on the border, is so bad that it allows the president to spend up to a trillion dollars um, to redistribute pe- uh, money t- to people who have the lowest unemployment rate, the best health outcomes, and the rosiest prospects uh, in the country. I-, I think I think it's farcical. Uh, I think it is uh, willfully so, and I suspect if it gets to the courts, it will be struck down pretty quickly. Thank you so much for that clear and powerful case against the legality of the Biden administration's debt forgiveness program. Fred, let's begin with the first big challenge that Charlie Cook raised, namely that there's a difference between delaying debt and canceling debt. And although the law gives the ability to waive or modify aspects of the law, it doesn't allow the secretary to cancel payments. Charlie was channeling Nancy Pelosi, so I think it's only fair for me to channel Antonin Scalia. Uh, And that is to look at the language of the statute itself, not to try to go into the minds of the legislature. Justice Scalia was never one to worry too much about intent as much as the language to understand what, what did the plain meaning of the statute say. And the statute said that the Secretary of Education had the authority to grant waivers or relief to recipients. Relief can be given through delaying payments, but relief can also be given through canceling debt. Uh, Admittedly, that's a major form of relief, but we can't confuse two different things here. One is whether this is good policy or bad policy, and Charlie and I could debate that too, and I actually may agree with him more on that than he might think. Uh, My own view, for what it's worth, is that we'd be doing much better off uh, giving more grants up front and doubling the level of Pell Grants uh, than we would by doing debt relief. But that's not the, the issue that we're talking about, right, Jeff? We're talking about, given this action, is this legal? So the first thing it says is grant waivers or relief. And they could have said in the statute, in connection with a war or other military operation, full stop. And had they said that, we wouldn't be talking about this. But they didn't say that. The plain language says, with a war, other military operation, or national emergency. National emergency is, is not just a term that we can borrow in when we want to. National emergency is a, is a technical term, and we are still under a state of emergency with respect to COVID-19. Now, it is true the administration uh, took a position with respect to the immigration issue that Charlie was talking about, which appears to be inconsistent with that. The courts will have to wrestle that out. But the emergency still exists. And based on that emergency, that language in the statute is still applicable. Again, not going back behind, did anyone anticipate COVID-19 as a national emergency in 2003? Of course not. But they added that language, national emergency. I can only think they added language of national emergency to give flexibility to this law and to have it be applicable in times of emergencies that could not yet be imagined, understood, or predicted. And whatever I imagine that language may mean, that's the plain meaning of the language. So that's what uh, strict constructionists of statutes would tell us to do, and I think that's what the statute says. Charlie, we're talking about two statutory provisions that you flagged. One has to do with uh, waiving or modifying debt and whether that includes cancellation, and and, and the second, whether a national emergency still exists. On the first question, why you think that the Supreme Court is unlikely to think that waiving or modifying includes cancellation— Tell us why and tell us about the relevance of the court's recent decisions about the major questions doctrine in the EPA case and and also the COVID mask mandate case and and why you think that this Supreme Court is unlikely to to hold that Biden can do this. Well, I I think there are a couple of things here. Um, If we look at the text, we'll see that the 
the law, and I'll quote from the ORC memo if you like, necessary to ensure that, that's part of the law, student loan recipients who are affected, that's part of the law, by a national emergency, and here's the main quote, are not placed in a worse position financially. That's the language of the statute. I don't see how this decision by Joe Biden comports with that law. Uh, The people who have student loans uh, across this country have not been placed by this emergency in a worse position financially relative to their student loans, in part because those student loans have already been deferred for what's coming up on two years. If anything, it's taxpayers who've been placed uh, in a worse position financially because that money, which was supposed to come in and cover the cost of Obamacare, among other things, has not been coming in. That's not a policy position I'm taking. That is a, is a legal reading of the language. I, I agree we should look at the language, and and there it is. Um, I think as a broader point, uh, and I, I would note that the OLC memo actually does quite a lot of uh, reading of legislative history. So while I'm absolutely in agreement with Justice Scalia that we should look at the text uh, and not legislative history, much of the legislative history that is mentioned in the OLC memo is remarkably weak. For example, Uh, It suggests that Congress wanted the executive, quote, to act quickly should a situation arise that is not being considered. And it it argues this in favor of Joe Biden's order. But of course, this order came two and a half years after COVID came along. So I don't think we could scan those two. Um, It also says we have found no statements from the brief floor debate on the act expressly rejecting the secretary's power to cancel student loan debt under the HEROES Act. And I mean, this is just silliness. There are a lot of things that aren't in there. That doesn't mean Uh, Congress can do it. But more broadly, uh, there is, of course, a difference between uh, strict constructionism, if you like, or textualism, or looking to the text, uh, and taking from a given law uh, powers that would be better suited to an enabling act. And it is simply not the case that the courts in this country regard any sentence that could be broadly construed to confer unlimited power on the executive. Now, I think Congress does share some blame for the situation we found ourselves in, in that it does like to pass laws with broad language. Congressional legislators do not like to do any work, uh, and the executive branch is happy to fill the gap. But there is no one who wrote this uh, who believed that this conveyed a trillion dollars worth of student debt. And one doesn't have to look at the legislative history to determine that. One has to look at the manner in which it's written and the context within all of these sentences that are listed in this OLC memo um, arise. And I don't think it would be a departure from textualism or a an undermining of textualism for a court to arrive at that conclusion, as the Department of Education did last year in a really tight, well-argued and convincing memo that came to precisely the opposite conclusion, looking at exactly the same text. Fred, Charlie points to crucial statutory language in Section 2, which says that the Secretary is authorized to waive or modify any provision described in Paragraph 1 as may be necessary to ensure that recipients of student financial assistance are not placed in a worse position financially in relation to that financial assistance because of their status as affected individuals. What is your response to his claim that students are not placed in a worse position because of the pandemic and therefore the debt forgiveness is not authorized by the statute? 
I, I think that the, the fact that the administration continued the suspension of debt from the prior administration uh, was one way of addressing this, but it doesn't remove the issue. Uh, in fact, the very fact that debt was suspended uh, speaks to the point that both a Republican administration and a Democratic administration felt that the appropriate next step was to shield students uh, under a burden of debt during the time of COVID. So I think they both understood this to be a impact on these individuals. Now the question becomes, what, what, is, there, what is the next step? Is there a next step? Uh, has, has all of it been alleviated? Uh, or is it necessary to do something more? That's precisely what's left to the Department of Education. It, it's true this is a big number. Uh, and it's true that Congress may not have thought in terms of this being uh, the, the number. But when Congress passes legislation, they should be held to what that legislation is, and then it is consigned to the administration. We also have to remember, administration didn't, didn't get there from nothing. I mean, administrations become administrations because they uh, receive a national mandate, and they come in with a program. So I think the Congress in 2003 could have written a, a narrower law. They chose not to. By the way, the Congress in 2003 didn't have to be dealing with the issue of uh, even military emergencies with respect to student loans. So Congress in 2003 was concerned about student loans. They did pass legislation with respect to that. They did give authority to the Department of Education to implement it. And they created this wide provision for national emergencies, which to me is only understandable in terms of providing a life for this law beyond the immediate emergency and condition of that time. Then it's for the Department of Education to implement in a way that is in fitting with that. So again, on the merits, one might argue that this is not the best way to address the problem. But I don't think that goes to the question of whether or not it's legal for this Department of Education to make this decision to benefit these people. Charlie, we've had a couple of important decisions recently from the court about the major questions doctrine, most recently West Virginia versus EPA, where the court held in Chief Justice Roberts's majority opinion that there are extraordinary cases in which the history and breadth of the authority the agency has asserted and the economic and political significance of that assertion provide a reason to hesitate before concluding that Congress meant to confer the authority. What's the relevance of the EPA case for the Biden administration's debt forgiveness? Well, I, I think this is a major questions doctrine case. And I think if it reaches the Supreme Court, it will be treated as one. And I think it should be. I mean, the question we have to ask is, why has the major questions doctrine suddenly come to the forefront of our national jurisprudence? And the answer is because presidents of both parties keep insisting that the emergency laws we have on the books, or in the EPA case, just the laws we have on the books, many of which ought to be tightened or repealed, I do accept, are in effect enabling acts. The profound changes to the status quo uh, that presidents are using them to make represent a difference in kind, not in degree, masquerading as a difference in degree, not in kind. You know, thus, uh, Obama in 2010, uh, he says, well, you know, I, I'm allowed to evaluate deportations on a case-by-case -case basis under law, so surely I'm allowed to preemptively shield 10 million people from deportation. You know, so Biden says, well, I'm allowed to tinker with student loans at the margins during an emergency. And of course, he could pick anything as an emergency, as Trump did with, with his border wall. Uh, then I can order wholesale cancellations. And, you know, this makes a mockery of Congress. 
Uh, and frankly, it makes a mockery of our entire system of separation of powers. Yes, Joe Biden was elected nationally. He won the election. He won it well, at least on the popular vote. Uh, but the Constitution has the same restrictions on presidents. Article 2 contains the same words, whether or not uh, a president squeaks through, as George Bush did in 2000, or wins a Ronald Reagan-style landslide. Um, so, of course, the courts have started to notice this ruse, because president after president after president has done it. Usually, it has to be said, after announcing publicly that they're not allowed to. And this is uh, what Obama did. He said 22 times he couldn't do DACA. He said, I'm not an emperor. I'm not a king. I'm not a dictator. We have a Congress. Then Donald Trump spent months trying to convince Nancy Pelosi and the Democratic House to give him money for his border war. They said, no, 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 no. Trump stormed out of a meeting famously and said, I need to get this done. And then magically they find an emergency power that justifies taking uh, $6 billion out of the Treasury without Congress. And now Joe Biden has done the same thing. Uh, having expressed skepticism that he could do this, having had members of his own party tell him that he couldn't do it, he, he says, well, of course I could do it. Look at the 2003 HEROES Act. Yes, of course, that piece of legislation we all thought did a trillion dollars worth uh, of damage. Uh, this is a, a, a growing trend, and it presents a, an enormous problem for our, our system under both uh, parties. Uh, and I think the court is right to superintend this uh, and to put some limits on what can be found in the corner of this law or that law to essentially transfer unlimited power to the executive branch. Fred, what would your response be if you were arguing this before the court? Uh, how would you say that this is not a major question? In identifying what counts as a major question in the EPA case, Chief Justice Roberts noted that the EPA claimed to represent a transformative expansion in its regulatory authority. It located this in an ancillary provision of the act designed to function as a gap filler and had rarely been used. And the agency's discovery allowed it to adopt a regulatory program that Congress had conspicuously and repeatedly declined to enact for itself. Um, some analysts, including Charlie Rose, who served as the top lawyer in the education department under President Obama, said that it's fair to discern Congress has inferred that the education department in this case should not decide the question of mass forgiveness of performing loans. Um, how, how would you argue all this before the Supreme Court? Jeff, l let me first go back to Charlie's contextualization of the major questions doctrine. And, and I, I largely agree with his description of the court's reaction to it, but I want to pull the camera back a little bit uh, before just the past few administrations. The administrative state, as it comes to us today, really has its origins at the time of uh, President Roosevelt and the New Deal, and an understanding that Congress and Congress alone is not going to be able to react to the kinds of challenges and problems that a sophisticated modern society uh, confronts, the Great Depression being the classic example of that. And so you have a balance that has to be struck between what powers can be delegated by Congress to administrative authorities, and there's a whole branch of law now that, that arises with that. Uh, when pendulums swing, they, they uh, sometimes swing too far in one direction and then too far in the other direction. So perhaps uh, the executive branch has gone further in certain ways than it might, and the court is now responding to that. But look at what Ju Chief Justice Roberts said in the West Virginian EPA case. He says, Congress does not use oblique or elliptical language to authorize an agency to make 
radical or fundamental change. So even assuming that this is a radical or fundamental change, and I think the only radical piece of it uh, that, that, that Charlie mentions uh, studiously multiple times is the number of zeros at the end of the number. And I agree, it's a big number. Uh, but that alone does not make it radical. It makes it large. I don't think it makes it a change in, in kind as much as a change perhaps in size. But the key piece of it is not so much that. The key piece is the oblique or elliptical language. And I think that is what really triggered the invocation of the major questions doctrine to say that an agency can't grab some oblique language and use that as the basis for making some major decision that has political or economic ramifications. Here, as we've been talking about, there's nothing oblique or elliptical about the language of the HEROES Act. It specifically speaks to addressing student loan relief. It specifically speaks to conditions of national emergency. So there is nothing inconsistent with the court using this as a case to address the major questions doctrine again and showing us where the pendulum should rest and that this case falls on the other side where the agency action should be upheld as opposed to the EPA action in the West Virginia case where it struck down that action. Thanks so much for that. Charlie, your response to Fred's claim that this is not oblique and elliptical language, that it explicitly authorizes the debt forgiveness, and maybe put on the table the argument that the majority could say that an affected group has to be smaller and more targeted than every lower middle income American, and therefore that large class of affected people is not covered by the explicit language of the act. Well, I certainly agree with that. As I say, I think it's almost impossible to make the language of the act comport with what was done, which is provide mass transference of student debt liabilities away from people whose families earn a quarter of a million dollars a year when those people were already uh, much better off than pretty much everyone else in the country. Again, that's not a political point that matters because we're talking here about mitigating the economic effects of COVID. Uh, it's worth pointing out that the, the people we're talking about have already had loans deferred for two years, uh, whereas, say, a plumber with an F-150 has not. Congress didn't act. The executive branch didn't find some law to act on their behalf. Um, but in terms of the elliptical point, I mean, the, the, the language in this OLC memo justifying this decision is quite literally elliptical. I mean, it is full of ellipses. There are 25 or so in the, in the bits of the law that they put together to come to this conclusion. And they don't even argue that this is a narrow textual matter. They don't sound like Justice Scalia in this OLC memo. And I'll read you a little of it if you like. Here, several contextual clues indicate that Congress used the word necessary in a more flexible and capacious sense. Okay. Uh, as an initial matter, the fact that Congress granted the Secretary discretion to deem whether a waiver modification may be necessary signals that Congress understood the word to authorize a range of possible actions. That Congress did not expect a closely tailored fit between the Secretary's exercise of the waiver and modification authority and the Act's objectives is also evident from, and so on and so forth. This is an exercise in sophistry. Uh, I think that Joe Biden knows it. I think that the lawyer who wrote this knows it. I am absolutely convinced that Nancy Pelosi knows it. And I would like to see a different approach being taken by the executive branch, being taken by Congress in particular, which bears the ultimate responsibility for this. And if it comes to it, and I know we're going to get understanding, uh, by the courts. 
I don't want hand waving. I don't want squinting. I don't want ellipses. I don't want a wall full of bits of laws torn up into little pieces of paper and then uh, attached with glue or sticky tape. I want precise laws and I want the executive branch in such cases that the laws aren't precise or it is clear uh, that they are trying to do an end run around Congress to desist. Fred, your thoughts on this third point about statutory ambiguity, we've identified three already. First, that uh, waive and modify doesn't include cancellation. Second, that this is not an ongoing national emergency. And third, that the affected group has to be smaller and more targeted than everyone. Uh, What do you think about the third point? I I think ultimately there's a policy argument for that, but I I don't think that's required by the by the, uh, the statute. I think, again, this is the kind of thing that is properly left to the agency once Congress has provided the authorization for it. We can argue late into the night about whether Congress does a good job uh, structuring exactly how it does those authorizations, but I think we can't do a sensible argument about whether or not, in 2003, Congress intended to give the Department of Education authority to deal in certain ways with student debt Uh, certain ways that might be substantial with student debt in cases of national emergency. And now the question is, how do we implement that? Now, one one approach would be to say that we should assume that it's very, very narrow and you need another piece of legislation to do something. You you could argue that. Uh, But I don't think that's what the statute itself requires. I don't think that's what the statute itself says. Uh, And I think what the the uh, memo of the Office of Legal Counsel is doing here is not um, is not sophistry in the least. Uh, I think it is trying to put this language into context, but at the end of the day, it is about what was the statute designed to do. Again, go back to 2003. There were many issues that they could have been dealing with at that time other than student debt relief. That was one that they passed a specific statute about. And again, they could have left out language that expanded it beyond that time. For that matter, they could have sunsetted it. Congress knows how to do that, and they have on many occasions put a sunset provision that requires it to be reaffirmed by Congress. They did none of that. They put national emergency language in, which clearly is designed to make this an ongoing statute, an ongoing mandate, and an ongoing authorization. Thank you for that. Charlie, let's put on the table the NFIB versus OSHA case. That was the case where the Supreme Court held that the federal government's powers don't include the power to impose a national mask mandate. And Justice Gorsuch, joined by Justices Thomas and Alito, said that we expect Congress to speak clearly if it wants to assign an executive decision of vast economic and political significance. The majority stressed that uh, the statute didn't authorize sweeping health regulations that affect workers' lives outside the workplace, because unlike regulations inside the workplace, historically, outside matters have been regulated at the state level by authorities who enjoy broader and more general governmental powers. How does that cut when it comes to student debt forgiveness? Well, I think the Supreme Court was right about this. There was, of course, a a different variable here, and that is that there were quite a few uh, cases related to that law and to OSHA's use of that law uh, that cut against the Biden administration's order. Uh, This one hasn't been litigated yet. Uh, so, you know, we're having this conversation in a vacuum. We don't have 40 years worth of precedents to look at. Uh, but you know, broadly speaking, I-, I think the Gorsuch line that you cited is the key one, which is that Congress is expected to speak clearly, uh, that uh, 
when you are dealing with an issue of this magnitude that is perceived um, to be uh, a live political issue, um, where there is profound disagreement in the country and in Congress, uh, you should expect a law that is not uh, within the legislative history, because I'm not a legislative history guy, uh, but in its text um, and in its preamble, if need be, open about what it is trying to do. And I don't think that the OSHA law that the Biden administration tried to use did that uh, as it relates to health crises and their effects outside the workplace. And I don't think that this law, the HEROES Act of 2003, does it either. And I hope that when it comes to the court, this is uh, the precedent that I'm looking for. We can build it uh, atop the EPA case and the OSHA case, and to some extent, the eviction moratorium case, uh, which was another example of the Biden administration. And once again, knowing that it was acting illegally, saying even to one reporter, Philip Wegman, uh, that while he assumed it was illegal, he wanted to keep it going for a month or so while it was litigated, uh, trying to extract out of a much narrower law, broad powers. I'm pleased that we have a court uh, that, that has started to demand that Congress is clear. Uh, now, I'll just say again, I do accept that Congress is a villain here as well. Um, but I just don't think we uh, want to have a political system uh, or do have a political system in which um, the executive branch is allowed to seize on these these ambiguities to make uh, extraordinary changes to our, our law. Fred, if you were arguing before the court, how would you distinguish the OSHA case, the mask mandate case, as well as the eviction moratorium case? I think you come back to the statute and the statutory authorization. And I think the West Virginia uh, against EPA case fits in with a piece that is going to require Congress to be uh, careful and is going to require agencies to take Congress at their word. But that's a case where this has happened in, the, in this instance. So I, I think that that's how it, it is distinguishable, that it, there's no question that we are living with a court uh, that has less of a taste for a broad, free-ranging administrative state. But I don't see that as meaning that it is a court that does not permit Congress, where it is speaking clearly, to authorize to administrative agencies. And if the agencies, in fact, misinterpret what Congress has said, then it is for Congress to act, not for the courts to act. This is a matter where Congress can say that's not what the statute said. The agency is interpreting it uh, within their authority and with a good faith, reasonable interpretation of what Congress did. That's not for the courts to step in at that point. That's part of the political process, which falls to Congress to act or for that matter, for voters to respond. I mean, that's how our political system works. But the notion of holding the agency's uh, feet to this imagined fire of a narrow reading of a statute is not consistent with our whole system. Where you have a piece of legislation that could have been written, clearly could have been written more narrowly than it was, one has to assume that it was written for the purpose of being broader. There's, it doesn't make any sense otherwise then that does give authority to the department to take the steps. Um, you don't have that in the OSHA case. That's certainly what the court said. But I think here you have a different statute that provides. Charlie, let's pick up on your argument that 
In May, President Biden ended the use of Title 42 at the border on the ground that COVID-19 no longer represented a national emergency. And yet we're supposed to believe that three months on, COVID-19 remains so much of an emergency that the White House can forgive loans. Tell us about the legal significance of that determination and, and how you think the court will treat it in this case. Well, there are a lot of laws on the books, far too many in my view, that confer upon the executive branch broad powers when we have an emergency. Now, a lot of these laws uh, predated 9-11. A lot of these laws were actually written during the Cold War. Uh, and, and they're sprawling. And, I mean, for example, a lot of what Donald Trump did while president on tariffs was the result of emergency legislation. So, um, you know, I would like to see these reined in by Congress. They haven't been. But what they have in common, irrespective of whether they're good or bad or sensible or outdated or whatever, is that there has to be an emergency. Um, and, you know, if you, as an executive, are able to declare anything as an emergency, then you've got an enabling act. You've got an act that says the president can do this if there's an emergency. The president can also decide whether there's an emergency. Therefore, the president can do whatever he wants in this area. Now, the law in question, the one we're debating, uh, requires there to be an emergency. Uh, and that emergency, apparently, uh, is COVID-19. Now, if the Biden administration across the board were arguing that the COVID emergency is so bad uh, that it is enabled to do anything it likes to mitigate it pursuant to statutory authorization, that would be one thing. But it's not. Uh, Back in May, uh, the uh, uh, Biden administration ended the Title 42 program, which was much loathed on the left because the underlying emergency, that being a health crisis, no longer obtained. That's not my interpretation. It said this in court. Again, I thought that the Biden administration was obliged to end Title 42. I defended the Biden administration for this because otherwise you just have this random 1940s health law that is being used to rewrite American immigration policy in violation of congressional will. And that is, uh, that's a violation of Article 1. But you cannot have it both ways. Joe Biden cannot, on the one hand, suggest that for the purposes of immigration, where it actually really matters, given that this is a transmissible disease, COVID is no longer sufficient as a threat to warrant emergency executive power. But on the other hand, COVID is so bad that two and a half years into the pandemic, when in most other areas, in most states, and in most federal law, uh, it has been either rejected uh, or diminished in scope, that it applies to student loans. Uh, And especially that it applies to student loan transference from people who are on average healthier and wealthier and have better prospects, um, uh, from the, to those people rather, from people who are anything but, from people at the bottom of the economic spectrum. Again, I, I don't think this is a political debate. I agree entirely. The merits of this as an economic question or a social question or a political question um, are irrelevant. But they do matter when it comes to this law, because the argument here is that COVID is so bad that people who have student loans are suffering, that they are now financially worse off than they would have been, and that the president has to use this law in the midst of an emergency that he says, in other contexts, doesn't exist, 
um, to take an extraordinary step, a step that, you know, a, a trillion dollars, yeah, it's a lot of zeros. It's it's also you know, one thirtieth of our debt. Um, it's a quarter of the f- annual federal budget. This to me is selective. I, I call it Schrodinger's COVID. Um, it, it, it suggests to me once again that neither Biden nor those who have authored this believe a word of what they're saying. Thanks for that. Uh, Fred, Charlie just said Joe Biden can't argue that for purposes of immigration, COVID isn't an emergency, uh, but it is one for purposes of student loan debt forgiveness. What do you, what's your response? That's exactly what they're going to have to explain. If this does make it through court, we'll come in a moment to whether this will actually be able to get into court. And I think the answer will be something along the lines of the nature of the emergency at the border is different from the nature of the emergency in other places. And that, in fact, what happened with respect to student debt, this is the, the last aspects of, in fact, an ongoing economic impact uh, on students former students who have debt, which began with a pause. And now this last step is of a certain level of, uh, of forgiveness, um, not a complete forgiveness of loan. I mean, this also shows the political compromise that was involved, which is how one expects these decisions to be made, uh, not, not by a, a court making a uh, decision of, of yes or no, but by the political process making a decision of how much and balance and as opposed to what. Um, some of the issues that Charlie and I may disagree on, may agree on, as he says, are quite beside the point. The question is whether there's authority for the Department of Education to, to do this. So it, it, on, a, a, on a tactical level, will this be an awkward part of a court argument? Yes, it, of course it will be. Um, isn't it true that you said the following thing in court? Uh, six months ago, and now you're saying this today. Sure. Um, but I think the way it will be explained is that the impact is different at different times, and the impact with respect to Title 42 was of what was happening at that moment, whereas the impact with respect to using the HEROES Act uh, is the cumulative impact of the full two, two and a half years of this crisis. Charlie, you had a memorable section in your piece, The Hidden Authority to Enact Everything Republicans Want, where you said, I spent a moment riffling through other federal laws Uh, like the Antiquities Act of 1906, which on its face was designed to protect Native American ruins from poachers. But if you dig deeper, you'll find it enacts a national ban on abortion. Uh, Give our listeners a flavor of that argument and why you think broad authority uh, could lead to unexpected results. Well, I mean, obviously, that was heavily sarcastic. Uh, It was the result of my having just read the OLC memo, uh, which I, I don't think attempts to make a case on textual grounds at all. I, I don't think makes a narrow case at all. I, I think involves a lot of hand-waving. You know, William Board, uh, who writes about the law, among other things, for the New York Times, um, said that even Section 3 of the memo, uh, which is the part that concludes that the president has the authority, doesn't really make much of a declarative argument at all. It's sort of said, I don't want to misquote him, but it sort of says, well, if certain circumstances obtain, which probably don't, but could, and if you read it in this way and you zoom out a bit, then maybe the authority could plausibly perhaps be found. And you know, it, it just made me think of all of the other laws that we could treat like this. And frankly, that presidents have started to treat like this, presidents of both parties, where they make a promise I mean, Joe Biden in 2019, before COVID, before anyone had ever heard of COVID, started saying that he wanted to do this. And when he did it last week, he said his promise was kept. 
That sort of undermines the idea that this was driven by COVID, justified by COVID, that the law was invoked by COVID. He also, when he was running for president, said that he would push it through Congress. He didn't say he would do it on his own. But Joe Biden has done what the last few presidents have done, which is decide he wants to do something, recognize that there is not the appetite in Congress to do it, and task his lawyers uh, to look through tens of millions of words in the law books, find the ones that might plausibly be tieable to his aims, and then say, aha, I've found authorization. Uh, And this is the crux of our disagreement. I do not see this as a arguable reading of the HEROES Act. I do not see this as a uh, narrow dispute over statutory meaning. Uh, I see this as a, a knowing, a willful violation on the part of the president of his oath of office. Um, and I think at some point, Congress, again, Congress has a great deal of blame, is going to have to do something about this this behavior that we're seeing from presidents who are repeatedly getting away with it and making a mockery of the system. Thank you both for a vigorous discussion of the merits of the statutory argument for and against debt forgiveness. Let us turn now to standing. Generally, this is a question that makes people's eyes glaze over. But in in this case, uh, several commentators have argued that there's a serious question about whether anyone would have standing to challenge the legality of this act. Jack Hoover in the Virginia Law Review considers a series of uh, people who might bring a challenge, including taxpayers, former borrowers, Congress, state government, and loan servicers, and says that none of these parties could assert Article Three and prudential standing. Uh, Fred, as clearly as you can, because we all know how, how technical this question is, tell us why you think uh, that there might not be standing to challenge this forgiveness. Jeff, it might be useful instead of saying, you know, what, what is standing to say, why is there a standing doctrine? Because you're right, no, nothing makes law students' eyes uh, glaze over, let alone the general public, uh, faster than talking about standing. But there's a reason we have a standing rule. Uh, our courts, as a matter of constitutional law, and I would say as a matter of very good uh, policy, are courts that are designed and authorized to decide disputes cases and controversies, to use the constitutional language. It's not a decision-making body. It's not an advice-giving body. There's a famous story in the early days of the Republic of President George Washington asking the court for an advisory opinion about some matter, and the court says, we're not in that business. And by the way, there's nothing undemocratic about courts doing that. In the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, for example, the Supreme Judicial Court does, in fact, give advisory opinions, but our federal courts do not. And I think there's a good reason for it, because we want issues that come before courts to be actual cases, actual controversies where somebody was directly hurt and then brings a lawsuit about that, and that's what courts adjudicate. In a way, the most honest group withstanding, if you will, uh, and I'll say in a moment why that it doesn't work, would be all taxpayers who could say, we're having to spend this money for student debt relief and that's not what we want to do. And the court, I think also for good reason, has been very wary, in fact, uh, extremely restricted on the use of taxpayer standing. Why would they do that? Because broad taxpayer standing turns the courts into the political forum. We have a political forum. It's called the ballot box. If you don't like what the administration has done, you ought to vote them out. If you don't like what your member of Congress has done, you ought to vote them out. Uh, But you don't go to court 
in order to challenge the policy of a statute. The Congress in, or the policy of a regulation pursuant to a statute in this case. So that brings us back to the question, has somebody actually been hurt? Uh, I think individuals uh, are going to have a very hard time saying that. This does not hurt any particular individual. It's a policy decision. Like any policy decision, it has winners and losers. It has a lot of money involved, so it's got some winners and losers who feel very, very strongly about it. That doesn't change the underlying question of whether somebody has the right to sue. One other issue that's come up in terms of who might sue, there's been a rising trend recently of Congress. Members of Congress are one of the houses of Congress bringing suits, and of course, one of the things that's been written about, should either or both houses of Congress uh, change the party in control as of the November elections? It's plausible that as of January of 2023, that house uh, with a Republican majority might seek to bring a lawsuit on this. Let me share with you what Professor Vicki Jackson wrote about this. I think she's got this one right. She said, courts declare winners and losers based on legal principles. Legislatures should be the form of good political compromise to expand the capacity of congressional actors to litigate political disputes with the executive branch is not only a departure from our existing practice, but risks being fundamentally corrosive of whatever hopes exist for regaining a sense of moderation, compromise, and respect for one's opposition in Congress. If there's a debate about this issue, by all means, let's have it. And Republicans in the House and Senate ought to express their opposition to what the administration is doing. And candidates who run for president in 2024 might express that as well, but not by way of litigating it, because there's no individual who can assert this claim before the court. Charlie, Fred has made the case against taxpayer standing and congressional standing. Other groups include loan servicers, who Jack Hoover concludes would be the most likely plaintiffs because broad student loan cancellation would strike at their pocketbooks or former borrowers, and in fact, a coalition of small business owners who successfully challenged the mask mandate has also announced their intention to sue. Which group or individual do you think is most likely to have standing in this case? I do think this is a tough one. And I should say, um, I mostly agree (laughs) with the description we just heard. Um, And I agree that we should have a, a narrow set of standing rules for precisely the same reason, which is to avoid turning the courts into arbiters of purely or mostly political disputes. I also think uh, that this presents the, uh, the specter of an enormous hole in our constitutional order And we're having a discussion here about standing. So before I answer your question, let's just stipulate that nobody has standing. That is true, or would be true, irrespective of the merits of this case. So let's stipulate, too, that we agree that this is a terrible and illegal move with no statutory warrant whatsoever. What we are essentially saying in such a circumstance is that the President of the United States is able uh, to violate the law, and there's nothing anyone can do about it in court. Suppose, for example, that President Biden, in flagrant violation of Article 1, increased taxes on his own, and the IRS started sending out notices reflecting this and processing returns on the basis of executive-led changes to the tax code. 
There would be no one, I hope, in America who would say, yes, of course he has that power. That much is uh, made clear by Article 1. But who would have standing? Maybe nobody. Uh, that's horrifying. That is absolutely horrifying. Um, and I'm afraid that if that is the case, then the only remedy left is impeachment. If the executive branch is freelancing uh, and uh, violating congressional prerogatives, uh, then it has to remove him. So if we are looking here at a situation in which there is no likely standing for a plaintiff, then I think Congress has to impeach President Biden. Uh, it won't, uh, but at some point it's going to have to impeach a president or this is going to keep going. Now, on, on the specific question, um, I agree that the standing issue here is tricky. And also, uh, the standing issue has been made more tricky deliberately. Uh, President Biden is smart to have set this up so that uh, would-be recipients of this largesse have to actively apply for it. It's not the case that students will log in to their bank account uh, their, their student loan account and see the number drop by ten or twenty thousand dollars. They will have to affirmatively ask for it, and that actually takes a lot of potential avenues for standing off the table because you aren't suddenly hit with, say, a state income tax bill uh, for the money that you've received against your will. The court would then say, "Well, hold on a minute. You applied for it. You you incurred that liability." yourself. Also, uh, in last year's American Rescue Plan, last March, uh, Chuck Schumer pushed in at the last moment a line that uh, exempted from federal income taxes until 2026 any student loan uh, cancellation. Uh, so there's no federal income tax standing case either that could be brought by the recipients of this uh, even if they applied. So they've been quite clever uh, in laying the, the wayposts and the groundwork for this. Um, and I find it difficult to see who has been directly harmed. I do think that there is a chance that the court will accept a case from Congress. Um, and I think that would be appropriate. And uh, we've seen recent cases, the Obamacare mandate cases, for example, um, where uh, Congress managed to get in front of of the court. And Congress is what's being directly harmed here. <laughs> Article 1 is what's being directly harmed. Uh, and it would not bother me at all um, to see that happen, because that's not really taking a political question so much as it's litigating separation of powers. And I think the Supreme Court has an important role to play in superintending separation of powers. One last beat on standing and then closing arguments. Fred, the trend in recent years that the court has tended to be to accept standing a couple of exceptions, the Obamacare case where the court held state and individuals have no standing to block a federal individual mandate of zero dollars because there's no penalty. Um, but generally, when it's an important case with a lot of money involved, the court's been taking it recently. Predictably, do you think the court will take this case on standing grounds or throw it out? The court's going to have, first of all, the benefit of a uh, two sets of lower courts to, to help them think it through. Some, some district judge uh, who right now is minding his or her own business is going to be the first person to have to decide this, or quite possibly a number of them, because there could be a number of cases uh, that, that come up. So we'll have a chance to see this aired out. Uh, I think the arguments against standing are, are really quite uh, over, overwhelming here. Uh, and I, I think that the the court would be well advised not to get into the business of saying, if it's important, then the court has to decide it. We've never had a system like that. 
the court has the role of interpreting the Constitution and laws of the United States where there's an actual case in controversy. That's their limited mandate. Uh, that's what uh, my hero, and I think, Jeff, one of your heroes, Louis Brandeis, made very clear about that courts should do the, the smallest thing. Uh, justices like uh, Felix Frankfurter, who seems to be uh, much more uh, spoken about recently, he, he kind of uh, faded from scene for a little bit, but talking about the what uh, the great scholar Alex Bickle called the passive virtues of the judiciary have made something of a comeback. I, I have to uh, smile a bit, and I suspect that my friend Charlie will share this smile, uh, that the shoe is most decidedly on the other foot, and literally the left and right foot. Uh, it was about half a century ago when it was the left that was seeking to end run around the political process and looking for courts to play all of these roles. And many of us said, even if we shared the outcome of those decisions, that was a bad strategy. It was a bad strategy tactically, and it was a bad strategy constitutionally. So now the shoe is on the other foot. I, it doesn't uh, appeal to me any more now uh, than it did then. Uh, then I guess I liked the results of it, so I made my peace with it. Now it's even harder because I don't necessarily like the results of it. I, I think it's time for this court to say this is not how these things will be decided. If nobody is harmed, then we have two political branches and they're going to have to figure it out. Just to return to, to Charlie's point about the horrific uh, outcome of there being no remedy against a president gone rogue. Of course, there, there are two major remedies against a president gone rogue. He mentioned one impeachment, but that's not the major one. Um, the, the other one is the ballot box. And by ballot box, I don't just mean every four years an election. I also mean the legitimacy that the president has. There's a limit on what a president can accomplish in part by what the public uh, will, will accept. If this is overwhelmingly unacceptable to the public, uh, we'll see that at the midterms, and we'll see that in many other ways that will make it very hard for this president to Function. That's called the political process. You bet it is messy. But the answer has never been to tee this issue up before nine unelected people to make the decision. Charlie, your prediction about whether the court will or won't hear this case on standing grounds, uh, Fred mentioned uh, Justice Frankfurter, uh, who emphasized the passive virtues. Chief Justice Roberts has been a Frankfurter fan recently, and in the Dobbs case, he invoked Frankfurter, a thoughtful member of this court who emphasized that the most important thing we do is not decide. But Chief Justice Roberts didn't get anyone to join him in that case, and I don't see a uh, effulgence of uh, Frankfurterian uh, passivity taking sway on this court. So do so you think the court will hear it or not? I find it difficult to predict, and I'm not an expert in this area. There are so many different theories of standing that I've heard, and uh, it's hard for me to, to evaluate them. Uh, you know, I, I don't so much have the problem of, of sort of turning off and, and rolling my eyes when standing comes up. I, I have the problem of drinking from a fire hose because it's such a uh, complicated topic. Um, so I'm not sure how useful my prediction will be. I, I suspect that the courts will take it. Whether or not it will get up to the Supreme Court, I don't know. But the, the number of challenges that will come in, one court is going to take them. Uh, if there's a, a split on it, the court... Uh, above it might say no, uh, and then the case will be done. Um, I do think there's been a harm. I, I do think there's a real harm to Congress uh, and to the system. And I would just say in, in closing that while I accept that we have a, a democratic system and I accept that that is a check and an important check, we don't just rely on democracy in the United States. We have a constitution for a reason and we require our politicians to take an oath to it. And they don't say, well, I'll take an oath to this constitution, but ultimately 
Uh, I'll do what I want and then I'll see how that plays out in the opinion polls or in the midterms or if and when I run for re-election. There is an expectation uh, that our politicians will fulfill that oath. Uh, you know, I'm everyone's favorite person this week because I've written both that Biden should be impeached over this and that Donald Trump is completely unfit for office once again for what he's been saying on Truth Social about being reinstated as president. Um, now, you could say, well, yeah, Trump says he wants to be reinstated as president. Tried, Trump tried to stay in office last time around. But, you know, the democratic system will play. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That is ultimately true. That's the ultimate backstop. But I think we should expect more from our politicians if they take an oath. And this, to me, is a, a violation of Biden's oath. And so I don't have so much of a, a structural problem uh, with Congress impeaching him or with the court stepping in. But whether they will, it's very difficult to say. Well, it's time for closing thoughts in this superb discussion and in the crisp, beautifully constructed paragraphs that both of you are offering with the people listeners. Please tell them why you believe that the HEROES Act of 2003 does or doesn't allow President Biden to cancel the principal amounts of student loan. Fred, first closing thoughts to you. Why does the HEROES Act authorize loan forgiveness? HEROES Act was written at a time of national crisis and emergency and specifically did not limit its own reach. It did not put in sunset language. It instead created an authorization to deal with a particular ongoing problem that the American higher education system has to face, which is a lot of debt that students incur. That was considered to be one of the things that would have to be dealt with at a time of any national emergency, and that is what has happened uh, in this instance. Do I doubt that the president wanted to do this um, before he was president and before we knew about COVID? No, of course I don't doubt that. But one of the things that a president will always do is to look at circumstances to try to accomplish an agenda. You can't twist it to, to accomplish something that's not legally justified. In this case, it is. In this case, it causes him to reach back to a statute that dealt with precisely the question of indebtedness. The last time Congress dealt with it, and they dealt with it in a robust and an open way. Uh, and the Department of Education has now implemented that to the current time uh, in a way that's appropriate to our time, our crisis, our circumstances. If Congress thinks this has been overreaching, Congress will have to respond to that, and they very well may. Or for that matter, Congress may wish to appropriate even greater funds to say that the crisis is even greater with respect to higher education, separate from COVID-19. But for right now, the issue in front of us, I believe it is authorized, I believe it is a reasonable interpretation of it, and that the Department of Education should be permitted to implement what President Biden has announced. Charlie, the last word is to you. Please tell We the People listeners why you think the HEROES Act does not authorize President Biden to cancel student debt. I think the HEROES Act does not authorize President Biden to cancel student debt because no one until about seven minutes ago considered that it did. And because the OLC memo outlining the case is weak because waive or modify, as was confirmed last year by the Department of Education itself, does not allow the executive branch to uh, reduce the principal or interest of student loans because students have not been placed in a worse position financially in relation to that financial assistance because of a national emergency and because the national emergency that's being invoked does not exist according to the Biden administration itself in its last foray into federal court. And so the law doesn't provide for it. And even if it did, the conditions that the law puts uh, on its use uh, are not met. 
thank you so much, Fred Lawrence and Charlie Cook, for a illuminating, thoughtful, and wonderful discussion of the statutory and legal arguments about the forgiveness of student debt. Fred, you're speaking to us from Paris, so I'll say merci on behalf of We the People listeners. And Charlie, that was just de rien. It was really magnificent. And and both of you are just models of uh, reason and light. And you've, you've taught us all a lot. Fred, Charlie, thank you so much for joining. Today's show was produced by Melody Rowell and engineered by Dave Stotts. Research was provided by Sam Desai, Sophia Gardell, Samuel Turner, and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who's eager for civil, thoughtful, and illuminating constitutional debate. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the passion, the generosity, the engagement, the devotion to lifelong learning and civil dialogue of people who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission and who wouldn't be. Uh, you can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.